Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today we're continuing our exploration of this topic, and that is who's to blame for the First World War? Um, I had an intro episode and then I decided to maybe dedicate an episode to each of the countries that I think are the most likely candidates uh, to answer this question. So we dealt with Germany. Today, we're gonna continue playing the blame game with Russia, the Russian empire. And uh, I'd like to outline a, a brief kind of argument, a case that can be made that it was actually the Russians that were responsible for starting the Great War. So let's get started. Over the course of about a year and a half, from February of 1904 to September of 1905, the Russian Empire fought a war with Japan. And let me tell you, it was a disaster. It ended disastrously for the Russians. They lost two entire naval fleets. And these were a people, the Japanese, that a lot of the Russian military thinkers had very little respect for um, because they weren't European, uh, they weren't white, they weren't considered modern or anything like that. Like even Tsar Nicholas II had a very low opinion of the Japanese people. So that really didn't go well for them. And it was kind of a little bit of the beginning of uh, the Japanese kind of uh, coming onto the world scene as, as a world power. Now, in the aftermath of that war, there was a revolution in Russia. There were lots of strikes and protests and czarist troops firing on people. And later on, Bolshevik uh, revolutionary Vladimir Lenin would look back and say, yeah, that was kind of a dress rehearsal for the, uh, the, the famous communist revolution in 1917 that saw the end of the Romanovs and the collapse of the Russian Empire and um, essentially the birth of the Soviet Union. So I wanted to kick things off by talking a little bit about the position Russia was in in 1914. Uh, in the episode about Germany, I mentioned that they were undergoing a modernization process with regards to their army, uh, but it is worthy to note that when the war started, a lot of the Tsar's advisors said to him, they counseled him, that Russia actually was not ready for war. And even <clears throat> this domestic kind of struggle uh, that we had seen in, in the revolution um, maybe a decade prior, like in 1905, 1906, uh, all the strikes and stuff, that never really went away. Uh, the Tsarist regime was really shaken by that. And a lot of those domestic civil disputes were still present on the outbreak of war in 1914. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because it will go a little ways to explain why some Russian leaders were keen to go to war uh, in 1914. So first things first, I, I wanted to outline, there's pretty much two main reasons that I've identified why you could point to Russia as yes, this is the culprit. They are more the most responsible for starting this great conflict. And again, like I said in a previous episode, you know, I, I, the standard disclaimer is that there was no one country that shouldered all of the blame. And uh, I said this in the previous episode, like it, it just wasn't as clear as World War II, where you could clearly point to 
obvious aggressors. Uh, that's actually one of the reasons why I find World War One so interesting is because it is so complex. And um, as a historian, amateur historian, and this goes for journalists and scholars and, and academics too, like there's really a lot of digging that uh, you have to do. And there aren't a lot of clear answers with this war. The two reasons I wanted to bring up for Russia are first and foremost, um, Russia took it upon themselves to kind of act as the guardian of the Serbs, of the Serb nation, Serbia. Um, and it they didn't really have to do this. Like they didn't have an official alliance uh, the same way they had with France. And there are scholars who have looked at why Russia was so interested in projecting power into the Balkans. Now, one theory is that there was a large number of Russian merchants who uh, engaged in a great deal of commerce in the Balkans and were afraid of losing money if Serbia fell and was absorbed into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, if you put the merchant argument aside, there's also kind of the idea that Serbia was a useful tool to use to keep the Habsburgs, like the Austro-Hungarian, that's the name of the ruling family of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, to keep them busy. So if you're Russia and one of your regional rivals is the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you're going to want to support this little nation in the Balkans that uh, causes your rival uh, a great deal of trouble. Speaking of regional rivals, uh, let's talk about the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. Uh, you know, this is what we call Turkey today. For centuries, they had been rivals of the Russians, especially in the region of the Black Sea. Like if you look at uh, a map of this area, you'll see uh, the Russian Empire. Uh, it, it's on the Black Sea, the north side, and then the south side is Turkey. And um, much of the Black Sea region after the fall of the Soviet Union became Ukraine. But in any case, there uh, was a scholar called H.W. Crocker III. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what a name, huh? And uh, he was a, an American, and he published a book called The Yanks Are Coming, A Military History of the United States in World War I. But I just wanted to read this quote um, from him to illustrate this a little bit. Quote, the Russian bear made a pretense of looking on the Balkan states as her lost cubs. What the Russian bear wanted most of all was to splash in the warm water port of Constantinople, the gateway from the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean, and her cubs could lead her there." End quote. So you see, in the kind of geopolitical situation of the time, it was no secret to the European powers that Germany was making these frequent, bold overtures to the Ottoman Turks, uh, just like really cozying up to them a lot. And it's kind of complicated because you're like, what does Serbia have to do with this? It's because some of the Russian thinkers saw, uh, thought if we intervene in the Balkans and support Serbia, then that, you know, that's their conflict with the Austro-Hungarians that will necessarily pull in the Germans, uh, again, it was no secret that the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the German Empire were, were close allies by this point. And then that might pull in the Ottomans and we can grab some territory in the Balkans and maybe we can shoot for Constantinople. I mean, failing that, um, there were regions, you know, out of the Balkans that Russia could benefit from if they went to war with the Austro-Hungarians. One of them was... Um, the region of Galicia or Galicia, 
Uh, <laughs> I'm sure somebody's going to make a meme of that, like, bye, Galicia. But anyway, this was uh, a region inhabited by Poles in the northern part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and uh, the Russians wanted it, uh, you know, among other things. So the final reason why um, Russia was interested in Serbia is more of a, a social cultural reason, and it has to do with something called Pan-Slavism. The Serbs are a Slavic people and the Russians are a Slavic people. And as the most powerful Slavic nation in the world, Russia and the Tsar kind of saw it as their place to be the leader of the Slavic world. Now again, who are the Slavs? That includes people like Czechs, Poles, uh, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Russians, Serbs, Croats, Bulgarians, stuff like that. So. Russia kind of saw themselves as the leader of all of these peoples, and a lot of them were either absorbed into the German Empire, like with the Poles and stuff like that. A lot of them were absorbed in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Russians saw themselves as the defender of this struggling Serb nation, you know, that was that was just fighting for survival against this these aggressors from the north. Um, so that's kind of. You know, and again, that ties into one of our original causes, the acronym M-A-I-N, Maine, uh, where it's nationalism. And Pan-Slavism was a form of nationalism uh, in that sense. So that's kind of the first reason that I wanted to present as to why we can point to Russia is that they made it their business to intervene in the Balkans when really they didn't have to. Like they, 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 didn't have to. They made it their business to intervene in a conflict between two sovereign entities like Serbia and Austria-Hungary uh, when they didn't necessarily have to. As the July crisis was heating up and heating up and heating up in the summer of 1914, the Russian Tsar Nicholas II of the ancient Romanov family, a uh, brief tangent, who were the Romanovs? Well, they were the royal family of the Russian Empire and they had been around, they had been in power for 300 years. So definitely Nicholas felt the pressure of generations upon him. However, what had happened was when this crisis was heating up, uh, he actually had a lot of his advisors telling him not to go to war. Um, during the July crisis, there was the Prime Minister Sergei Vita. Uh, it, I don't know if it's pronounced Vita or Witta. Uh, he was the Prime Minister of Russia, and that may be a little confusing because you're like, why did the Russian Empire have a Prime Minister when they had a Tsar? Well, after those revolutions of 1905, the Tsar was forced to give a little bit of ground and the Russian Duma was created and some democratic measures, institutions were put in place in Russia that had never existed before. Now, the big boss was still the Tsar. But anyway, just so you know, there was this guy, the Prime Minister, Sergei Vita. Uh, there was also Pyotr Dernovo, he was the Minister of the Interior, and Grigory Rasputin, yes, that Rasputin, that crazy monk dude that was impossible to kill, but uh, the Tsar's wife loved him and trusted him because for some reason he was uh, able to treat their son's hemophilia and all this stuff. Anyway, Rasputin is a 
fascinating figure, and I definitely recommend you read up on him. But uh, yeah, even just through the month of July, the Prime Minister, the Ministry of the Interior, and this, um, I don't know what to call him, a counselor or an advisor, Rasputin, they urged the Tsar not to go to war with Germany uh, because they were telling him, uh, for one, we're not ready, and we are afraid that the war might um, inflame tensions at home, like domestic tensions. Now, on the other hand, there were two other people that were completely on the other side. There was Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, uh, also called Grand Duke Nicholas. Um, he eventually would become, like when the war would start, he was in charge of all the Russian armies. So kind of a big deal, this guy. He told the Tsar, quote, Russia, if it did not mobilize, would face the greatest dangers and a peace bought with cowardice would unleash revolution at home, end quote. So that's an interesting thing to think of is that maybe not all of the Tsar's reasons for going to war were aggressive. Maybe it was defensive. It was kind of a way to shore up his his tottering regime like he knew his regime had been shaken and he thought maybe a war would help things and in fact he was right like for the first few months of the war uh it actually did result in that until the disastrous battle of tannenberg where the russians just got stomped they got smoked by the germans but uh definitely i'm not going to go into that but it was just a huge disaster in 1914 called the battle of tannenberg now the other guy who was pro-war was the russian foreign minister uh his name was sergey sazanov sazanov okay so remember how i said right person right place right time and there was like these elites in each government that really pushed strongly for war counseled strongly for war like there were hawks in each government I'm getting the feeling, the more I read about this, that Sazanov was one of these people. Um, for one, uh, Annika Mombauer has suggested that after seeing the Austrian ultimatum to Serbia, Sazanov declared immediately that war would be unavoidable. And again, according to the guy I mentioned, H.W. Crocker, um, he said, quote, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, saw the Austrian ultimatum as a starting pistol. C'est la guerre européenne, which is French for it's a European war. So you can see the Tsar is kind of torn uh, two ways, uh, you know. Oh, you know, who, who does he listen to? Who does he listen to? Now, this brings us to the chief point, the, the chief thing I want to get to, and that is mobilization. Mobilization. So the armies of this time were huge. They depended on railroads and supply depots, and you just couldn't move them around uh, willy-nilly, anything like that. That's why mobilizing was such a huge thing, because this wasn't just like calling up the army. Like armies weren't small anymore. They were composed of millions of conscripts and reservists and stuff like that. The reason why a number of historians and scholars uh, point to Russia as actually starting the war is because they were the first to mobilize. That's right, the first to mobilize, even before Austria-Hungary, even before Serbia. Um, on the 25th of July, measures for a partial mobilization of four districts were decided and put into force early on the 26th of July. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? It's not full mobilization. It's four districts with a ton of soldiers in it that are close to the border. 
So how did this, what was the effect of this? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay, so here we are on the 26th of July, and there's like a bunch of things that happen in a very short period of time. But the 26th of July, Russia enters a state of pre-mobilization or partial mobilization of four military districts. And those are Moscow, Kiev, Odessa, and Kazan. Now, on the 29th of July, I just wanted to mention this, at 1 a.m., there's a series of telegraph uh, telegram exchanges between Tsar Nicholas and Kaiser Wilhelm, um, again, they're cousins where they're asking each other to stop the war. But, you know, things were starting to get out of control here. Uh, we're going to see that that did not work. And, um, you know, war, despite, I guess, the best intentions of Kaiser Wilhelm and Tsar Nicholas, you know, with regards to each other, just went ahead anyway. On the 30th of July at 5 p.m., the Austrian Emperor Franz Joseph declares full mobilization. Now, the same day, Russia proclaims general mobilization. Uh-oh, this is starting to get really serious. The 31st of July, the very next day, triggered by the Russian general mobilization at 11.55 a.m., Germany declares Kriegsgefahr Stustand which is a danger of war or a state of pre-mobilization. Now, what they did is they um, issued an ultimatum to Russia. And they said, basically, if you demobilize fully within the next 12 hours, we will not fully mobilize and we won't declare war on you. So, ooh, geez. Um, they also issued an ultimatum to France at the same time. Now, the next day, the 1st of August, in light of Russia failing to meet the terms of... So, Russia declined, uh, did not accept this ultimatum, then on the 1st of August, Germany mobilizes and declares war on Russia. And all the other stuff that comes after is going to follow. So them declaring war on France, going to war with the British Empire, da -da 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 -da, like the rest is history. So why did I give you this kind of timeline? It's because of that order of pre-mobilization on the 26th of July. Um, historians will point to this and be like, yes, like actually it was the Russians that were the first to mobilize. They were, you know, first, first of all, they were the first uh, outside European great power to get involved in this Balkan conflict between Austria, Hungary and Ser Serbia. And they were the first to actually start mobilizing. But it wasn't too late at that point. Like it wasn't necessarily too late because originally the the Tsar kept changing his mind. Like originally he was only mobilizing against Austria, not Germany, and then changed his mind and mobilized against both or whatever. Um, but even when he did this, uh, this Germany like Kriegsgefahr Sustand, the danger of war, Germany still had not mobilized uh, on the 31st of July. They only did that the next day. And they did take the time to issue that ultimatum. Like, look, hey, stand down, you know, in the next 12 hours, and we're, we're not going to go to war. And the Russians uh, said no. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Think about it. Uh, think about it. What would you have done in that situation? All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here today at uh, Bite Size History. 
I hope that I was relatively clear in uh, presenting this argument that it was in fact Russia who bears most of the blame for starting the Great War. And it was for those three points. Like one, they got involved in a dispute between Serbia and Austria-Hungary when they didn't necessarily have to. That's point number one. Like they got, they kind of inserted themselves into a Balkan conflict. Point number two is they were actually not the first to fully mobilize, but with that pre-mobilization order, it just put everybody else on high alert and triggered a series of mobilizations. So, you know, they were in fact the first great power to start mobilizing their armies. That's point number two. And point number three is they were given an ultimatum by Germany and who knows you know, maybe you can make the argument that Germany wasn't serious, but as far as I could tell, they were like, if the Russians had backed down, maybe this escalation, this outbreak of hostilities never would have progressed in the way that it did. Um, and that's the ultimatum I was talking about on the 31st of July, which the Russians declined. Uh, they just, they said no. And, and Germany said like, if, you don't stand down, we will declare war. And they didn't. So, and then Germany declared war. And again, we know what followed from that. It ended up pulling everybody in. So um, stay tuned for further episodes. I'm going to present the argument for it was actually Austria-Hungary who bore the greatest blame and another one on Serbia. And I hope that, uh, who knows, maybe with your friends, you guys can have some coffees discuss after hearing all of these episodes and uh, have your own discussion as to who you think is most to blame for the Great War. In any case, this has been Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And please leave a review on iTunes, tell your friends, Thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye.